the book of Philippians chapter 2, and we'll pick up where we left off. We made it through the first four verses of chapter 2, and I'm tempted to read those first four because, as I often say, these numbers were added much later than the original writing, and therefore they do not... Um, they do not prove faithful if you're looking to them to guide you in uh, decisive breaks in thought. And so just keep that in mind as we read uh, these verses. So let's re begin reading in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name, which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence this morning in desperate need of you. We bow in your presence, O Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praying that you will come and draw near to us today, that you will draw near to every heart, that we may be touched by your presence. Lord, that your word would not just fall on deaf ears, but that your word would fall into the fertile soil of a heart prepared by your presence and drawing power. We ask you to draw near today and work among us and walk among us in a special way that you might be glorified in every heart. That we could truly own you and call you and claim and confess you to be our Lord. That we would submit our hearts, our minds, our spirit, our soul, all that we are to you as the Lord, supreme Lord of our lives. And God, I pray that you would be magnified today. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been walking our way through this letter that Paul wrote so many years ago to the church at Philippi. And as we continue to do so, the banner that I want to fly over the message today is simply this. Have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. And as we see the table prepared for us today, one of the things that I like to do is when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper is to think of something, uh, if not all of the benefits, but focus in on one of those benefits that was purchased and secured through the redemptive work of Christ represented in the broken bread and the fruit of the vine. So as we partake today, I want you to think about the benefits. I want you to think about the blessings. I want you to think about the grace and the love and the mercy of God that was shown and manifested to us as his children through the redemptive work of Christ that's represented by these physical things. So have the mind of Christ. I have to give just a little bit of 
uh, introduction to this, I have in mind this morning two aims, two things that I'm aiming at in this message. Number one is that we would hear the preaching of the Word of God and prayerfully consider and contemplate upon the truths that are contained in these verses so that God would come and draw near that we could see Christ in His glory, in His beauty, in His uh, magnificence, and we would come to draw near to Him in worship. In other words, that the Word of God would give rise to affections in our hearts so that we would worship Him today. Jesus said that God is seeking a certain class of people to worship Him, and that is those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the way that we worship Him in spirit is to worship Him from a sincere heart of love and affection. And the way that we worship Him in truth is to worship Him according to His revealed Word. When we worship God in truth, we look into the Word of God, we meditate upon the Word of God, we contemplate upon the truths that God has given to us in His Word, and affections begin to rise up and bubble up in us, and that gives rise to praise. It's been contemplated through the years whether we should actually sing first or have preaching first. I know the typical way to do it, the traditional way to do it, is to sing first. But really, singing comes from the truth of the Word of God and the realization of the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And then you can't help but want to sing because of the grace and mercy that God has shown us. So the first aim is to see Christ in these verses to the point where we draw near to worship Him. The second aim that I have is that we would also see Christ as the supreme example for us as Christians. Because that is exactly why this account is in the Word of God. Because as the Holy Spirit moved upon the Apostle Paul to write, he gives us actually uh, one, two, three, four examples of verse 4. So I want to look at verse 4 because it's absolutely vitally necessary for us to understand our text this morning in light of verse 4. Paul says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And that was last week's message, that we would be united in passion, that we would be united in humility. And that we would be united in service one to another. This is the calling back in chapter 1 and verse 27 that Paul had begun to say, I want you to walk worthy of this calling, walk worthily of the gospel. And the way to do it is to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so this whole section here that we're going to be going through is only one example, and it is the supreme example of how to live that out, how to have other people esteemed as more significant than ourselves and to look not only to our own things, to our own interest, verse 4, but look to the interest or the things of others. Be others-minded. And what he's going to do, he's going to give us an example of Christ. He's going to give himself as an example. He's going to give Timothy as an example. And then finally he's going to give us Epaphroditus 
as an example as we go through the second chapter of this letter. And so those are the two views that I have in mind. So the crucial relational mark of the culture of our church should be Philippians 2.4. That we would look out, look to, see to it that we are diligent about not being self-centered, not having this vain glory, this baseless self-esteem, not having this strife among us, but by putting other people in our own minds and in our own hearts as more significant than ourselves, we began to serve one another. And this is what we should see as a local body of believers. This is the mind or the mindset that Paul has when he says in verse 5, let this mind be in you. Which was, Paul says, by example, also in Christ Jesus. And by implication, I want to say that this is what we're celebrating this morning. When we go to the Lord's table and we partake of this, we are showing that we are in partnership with the person and the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? On the cross of Jesus that Jesus bore, on the cross, Jesus paid not only for our eternal salvation, but he also paid for the unity of his bride, the church, which is lived out and fleshed out and seen and experienced in the life of individual Christians as we are coming together as a local covenant community, a body of one in the church we call Burke Memorial Baptist Church. And so this is the mindset that he wants us to have. This is the fragrance that we ought to smell as we come together. This looking into the interest of others and not ourselves. Esteeming others as more significant than ourselves. That's the fragrance we ought to smell. That's the vision that we ought to see as we come together and as we relate to one another in the church. And so now let us turn to this example of Christ, beginning in verse 5. I want to think about it in three ways. Three points. <laughs> you like that? Three points. Number one, our exhortation, or I could say Paul's exhortation to them, to us. The second thing, the second point, would be Christ's humiliation. And then the third point would be Christ's exaltation. Now, I don't know if we'll get to that third point because uh, this is, I have to say, as I prepared and thought about this message, I had it in view from the very first day we started in the book of Philippians. I think, I think this is my favorite text to preach. There's something about this text. Philippians chapter 2 from 5 through 11 that hones in on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That he is so exalted in this. I think if I could only have one text to preach from the rest of my ministry, I think this would be it. That's the reason I don't think I'm going to get to that third point. I'm going to try by God's grace and help. But let's begin looking at it. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you. What a simple command. <laughs> let this mind. This is our exhortation. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But there is nothing harder for fallen 
humanity to put into practice than the mind that Paul is talking about here, the relational culture that he's exhorting us to, and the example that Jesus Christ lived. There's nothing more difficult for fallen, sinful humanity to put into place, to put into practice than this mind right here. We're like the disciples who just before, uh, just hours before deserting him in the Garden of Gethsemane had been debating over which one of them would be the greatest. Right before that, they were debating about which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus rebuked them multiple times in his life and ministry and walk with them so that they could understand that this was not to be the case among the disciples of Jesus Christ. Those who are going to step out and follow by faith the person and work of Jesus Christ and, uh, and, and, and more, more importantly, the person of Christ would not be seeking to have a status but would be seeking to be a servant. That would be the distinctive flavor and the mark of the people of God, that we would have the mind of Christ who was a servant. We tend, as we learned from last Sunday night's message from the book of Romans chapter 12, we tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, just like the disciples did. Which of us will be the greatest? We covet But we cannot obtain. So we fight and we quarrel. We grasp at greatness because we covet the glory of being great in other people's eyes. But this was not the mind that Jesus had. This is not the mind that Paul is wanting us to cultivate in our hearts by the grace and the word of God and the spirit of God. No, Jesus' mind was to seek only the Father's glory. To seek the Father's glory above His own and above everything else. The one distinct characteristic of Jesus was that as He went about doing good and all of the crowds would come, they were just amazed that He could raise the dead. He could heal the sick. He taught, not like the other teachers, but He taught with authority and power. He could do these miraculous things. He could feed 5,000 people with just a little lunch, a little packed lunch. He could do all of these things and yet every single time he always pointed not to his own self but to the Father because he was consumed with the prayer that he taught his disciples. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Jesus Mind was to do the will of the Father, to please the Father. He did not grasp at glory. Instead, he humbled himself under the Father's mighty hand, knowing that the Father would exalt him in due time. And even the glory that he did have and he knew that he would receive was not to be sought and to be grasped after apart from the Father. Because he knew, as Romans chapter 11, verse 36 tells us, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so this is the mind that Jesus wants us to have. To long for and to live for the Father's glory and not our own. 
not our own, but the Father's. And interestingly and ironically, those who have this mind will be the ones who will experience the lasting exaltation at the day when Jesus Christ comes and we receive the everlasting reward of being partakers of his kingdom. Because it will be the Father who has given us everything, exalting us. And when he does, exalt us with him, with Christ. In the new heavens and the new earth, it will be his glory that will be shining and not ours. So that is our exhortation to have this mind. Have this mind. It's a supernatural work of God. You can't work it up. You can't make it happen. But my friend, if you will receive Christ by the grace of God this morning, or if you have, by grace and mercy of God, heard the gospel, repented of your sins, placed your trust and confidence and hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and have been born again of His Spirit, then you have the mind of Christ. You have the disposition in you that is humble. And so that's the example we want to turn to now. The second point. Christ's humiliation. Because he says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now from verses 6 to 8, he gives us the example that we are to follow. The mindset that we are to emulate. Verse 6, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he did not think it a dishonoring thing to claim equality with God. He, why? Because he was God. He is God. The phrase that makes this have its weight in verse 6 is the word being. Being. That word means the, the sense that it's used in the Greek language, in the original language, it means that he was being God. Not that he became God, but that he was God, that he was God at the present. He didn't become God at some point in his life, but he has always been God, one with the Father, and he will always be God. And he is perfectly Uh, worthy today of our praise because of that fact. And it also gives the weightiness to his humiliation. Because it's not like us humbling ourselves. We ought to humble ourselves. Because we are not God. But Jesus Christ was the only one who could have claimed that equality. He could have grasped at that glory and he could have come and said, all of you whom I've created by my power and who are sustained by my power should be bowing at my feet. But no, Jesus in his humiliation came and humbled himself. He came in his humiliation and being in the form of God, he did not lay claim to that seat of authority. He did not lay claim to that seat as he came in the form of a man. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then 
A little bit later on in verse 13, he says, and the word became flesh. The word who was God became flesh. And so Jesus Christ is one with the Father. And in his humiliation, he came. He was the one in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10 who laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of his hands because all things were created by him. All all things were created by him and for him and through him all things hold together today. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that. Revelation 13, 8. He was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. The weightiness of what this picture that we're about to see comes in the reality of the truth that God Almighty, in the person of His Son, stripped Himself of His royal glory and the seat of authority that He should have among all creation and was humiliated for you. And for me. And so in his humiliation, I want to look at five things. (laughs) Now that scared you, didn't it? Five things. Are Are you here this morning or are you somewhere else? Hello. This is Jesus we're talking about. Jesus. In his humiliation. Verse 7. He made himself no reputation. (laughs) Think of the reputation that Jesus has in the heavens. Think of how the angels bow at his feet. The demons listen to his commands. All things are sustained by the power of his word. And he made of himself no reputation. (laughs) We in America and across the world, human beings, we're completely consumed with our reputation. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's, the, who, who's living above the status quo? Who's the who on the list? Whatever you call that. We're consumed with it. But Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has all power and all authority, the one who is worthy of all worship, made of himself of no reputation in his humiliation. No, when he appeared among men to be despised and rejected, he was a man who was acquainted, a man of sorrows, Isaiah 53, and he was acquainted with grief. Also in verse 7, the second thing in his humiliation, he took upon him the form of a servant. If you see it there in verse 7, the form of a servant. He who was the creator of the ends of the, of the earth, whom angels delight to serve and adore, who was in the form of God, actually takes upon him the form of a servant, that he might bring a blessing And not just any blessing, but that he might bring reconciliation between God who created us and hostile rebellion among humanity on the earth. We had rebelled against God. We have turned our backs against God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And God Almighty laid upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the iniquity, the sin, and the transgression, and the rebellion, and the wickedness of us all. Took upon him the form of a servant. Verse 7 also goes on, the third thing is that he was made in the likeness of men. 
made in the likeness of men. Think about that for a moment. He took part of the same flesh and the same blood, the same frailty that you have and I have. Why? Well, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, that he was made into the likeness of men. He, he was made like unto his brethren. Why? So that only through death could he deliver us from the power of death. Only as a man could he die. And only through death could he destroy the one who has the power of death. Only through death could Jesus, the Son of God, conquer death for all of us. And how did he conquer death? Well, <laughs> when he was crucified on the cross, as it was predicted in Isaiah 53 and many places in the Old Testament, he didn't stay dead. But God raised him from the dead, and as Jesus said, I will lay down my life and I will take it up again. And so he purposely laid down his life and he arose from the grave, showing that death could not have and keep a grip upon him but that he had the power to overcome death. And now he says to you, he says to you and to me, that I am, Jesus said, the resurrection and the life. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. If you will come to trust Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior this morning, he says you'll never die. I'll give unto you eternal life, and no one will be able to pluck you out of my hand. He was made in the likeness of men. He who was the express image of the invisible God takes upon himself the likeness of sinful humanity. Number four in his humility in verse eight, and this is the key to it all. This is the key to the whole, whole example. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. One of the greatest tragedies in any culture, in any relationship between a husband and a wife, between siblings, between children and their parents, between bosses and their employees or vice versa, between people all over the world, one of the greatest tragedies is this thing called pride. Pride is what drives us to selfish ambition, which then breeds strife and envy and all of these problems that we face every day. Whether it be a nation and another nation. Oh, we're the greatest nation. No, we're the greatest nation. And so we fight and we quarrel for that greatness in the eyes of other people and other nations. But Jesus Christ is our supreme example. Humbled himself. He humbled himself. And listen today. This is the key to the Christian life. This is the key to the harmony and the unity that God in Christ purchased for us on that cross. That unity of passion, that unity of humility, that unity and service that we talked about last week is ours through the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. You have a disposition to humble yourself and serve one another. Why? The answer because Christ loved us. Christ died for us. He forgave us. He accepted us. He justified us. He gave us eternal life. Made us heirs of the world when he owed us nothing. He didn't owe us anything. And yet he 
did all of this. He humbled himself and became a man so that he could go to the cross, so that he could forgive you, so that he could reconcile you with God and give you eternal life and a heavenly home and an eternal peaceful relationship with Almighty God forever and ever in perfect paradise. See, what he did was he took thought not for his own interests, but for yours and for mine. He became the supreme example See, he says to us in Luke chapter 22, verse 27, Jesus said, Who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Who is the greatest, the one who is sitting there at the table or the one who serves? He says, Is it not the one who's sitting at the table? That's the greatest? He says, But I, key example, key phrase, but I am among you as one who serves. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. So where does our humility come from? It comes from us being overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy and the love of God. That's where it comes from. I told you I wouldn't get to his exaltation. Number five. The fifth thing under Christ's humiliation is that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And this is where we come to our communion table. This is the the greatest moment in human history was the day when the Son of God was strung up on a cross between two criminals, between the heavens and the earth. At the climax of his obedient life, Perfectly obedient to the Father. Whatever the Father wanted him to do, he accomplished it. And at the climax, at the apex of his obedience to the Father, what did he say? Not my will, Father. If it's possible, Lord, do I have to drink this cup? What is in that cup? Do I have to drink the cup of the wrath, of your wrath against sin? I didn't commit. Do I have to drink this cup? If it's possible, Father... Would you let it pass from me? And then he says, Nevertheless, not as I will, Father, but as you will. And he got up and he went to the cross and he took upon him the sin of his people and he bore the wrath of God and the wrath of God's anger burned upon his son so that now he could say, If you'll come to me, you will never suffer the wrath of God. That you can be freed to experience eternal life with me. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. Jesus died, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Father, I do thank you for this word. Oh, God, I'm so humbled by the love and the mercy and the grace that you show us. So undeserving. You would have been perfectly just. You would have been perfectly righteous. 
to just cast the whole human race into the lake of fire for our rebellion and sinfulness, seeking to live life our own way, not loving you with all of our hearts and our souls and our mind and our strength, but praise your holy name. You came in the form of a man, humbled yourself, looking out, not for your own interests, not grasping for the glory that you so rightly deserve, but you sought our interests by humbling yourself and dying on that cross. And we want to celebrate that today by partaking in these external, uh, physical things, this broken bread and poured out wine so that we can represent the broken body and the shed blood that you so freely gave for our redemption. In the name of Jesus, we praise you, God. Amen.